car-themed season five. Uh, I picked the LeBaron Town & Country, the wood panel station <laughs> wagon uh, for our guest, Greg Anderson, who's what a vehicle officer at EW Scripts, which is a huge company. I don't think everybody has necessarily heard of them, but they're like- Yeah, media, like low-key media conglomerate energy. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, Greg's a really thoughtful person, so I'm looking forward to Greg that. is chill, and like I like that he's he's a little he's country chill, right? Like uh, he's he's got like very laid back energy, but he's super substantive. And um, yeah, I'm I'm gonna make fun of him a lot, but he went to Georgia uh, law school, so you know I you know it sucks. I mean, he's he's overcome the tremendous challenges of going to a shitty law school, but he's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just <laughs> he's he's uh, he ha he has made something of himself. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's pulled himself out from the embers right. of <laughs> of a bad. He was the DPO and head of privacy at Lexmark, the big for like a hundred years printers company, and then now at Scripps, he's the chief privacy officer. Is like, can we talk about how Lexmark printers real quick? Lexmark printers in the Go late nineties were way ahead of their time. <laughs> just like way ahead of their time dude these things printed great i used to work at best buy and we'd sell like a lot of hp printers and then lexmark sort of came into the game and it was like holy shit these are excellent they had good ai <laughs> they had good ai man. but that's the best ink cartridges anyway whatever shout out to lexmark for being super dope in the 90s <laughs> shout out to greg mostly it's a good conversation so uh let's do uh, it man here it is all right, homie. I got to go to the board meeting. Enjoy your board meeting, bro. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. All right. All right. Here we are. Here. We're here. I'm uh, tired. I don't, know if, I don't know if you know why I'm tired, but I'm happy to tell you. Go for it. <laughs> so for the viewers at home, the listeners at home. We won the World the Series. Hat. I'm wearing a I say this hat. lovingly, Pedro. You're the most fair weather fan of any false sports. False. <laughs> this is false. So here's the truth. I've been a diehard Heat fan since 1988. I went to the first ever Miami Heat game and I've been a fan through all the downs, the 10 and 72 season. Okay. So, like, I've been a Heat fan my whole life. I'm still a Dolphins fan, and you know what that's like, or like that's the worst case scenario. I am a Washington Nationals fan, which I have been for many, many years, as you know, and they finally won a World Series. I mean, I've been a Nationals fan since they sort of got reinstated. In I've DC. also seen you say Dodgers, Orioles, Giants. No, no, no. Giants. I've no, seen no, no. you like that. Wait, wait, wait. There's one more team. There's one more team because we got to get it all out. I've been a Milwaukee Bucks fan since they were trash and everyone knows it. And you know what's amazing about this? I started a chat group in 2017 on WhatsApp and it was called Bucks in Six. That's what it was called. The Bucks won the finals this year in six, and on their championship ring, it says Bucks in six. I'm just gonna put that out there. So I'm not a fair weather fan, but I do live in Atlanta, and I'm really happy for the city. Um, I'm, you know, these guys had a 26 year drought of misery, and um, you know, I'm super happy for what's going on here. Atlanta needed a big 
happy, positive moment. And I think we got it. So it was cool. Good. I, sp I spent some time down in your neck of the woods for, I went to Georgia for law school. So I saw that. Uh, I forgive you because I went to Florida, but it's oh, fine. We can't all be perfect. I live in Kentucky. So you want to talk about oh, a little bit of memory there. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not it. There we go. What is the, uh, in, in Athens, I've always wanted to go to a football game in Athens. Like what is, 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 is that between the hedges? What's this, what's the stadium called there? Or is it between uh, two ferns? Somewhere else. Yeah, between well, between the, between the two ferns, right? Uh, between the hedges, I, I tell you what, it is, you got to go, right? I mean, it is, so coming from Kentucky, we're a basketball state. We barely, wreck, I mean, this year, actually, we've got a team. But the, the running joke's always been that we don't really play football, but we tailgate professionally. Because yeah. tailgating at Commonwealth is amazing. And growing up with that, and then I went to Miami of Ohio, which is Mac school, which both the basketball and football were in were played in places that looked like a high school stadium or or you know for for me but um then going to Georgia you know I thought I knew what tailgating was but in Athens and this is really true the the parking lot that we were allowed to park in at law school would close down either like Tuesday or Wednesday the week before the game because the entire state would show up in their RVs and they needed a place to park so we had to park you know miles away because the game was going to be on Saturday and you could literally hear it pretty much anywhere in town. It's, you know, it, it's, it's funny how similar this all is to Florida. It's the same thing. And our law school parking lot would get shut down. I mean, we have a much better football team over time than Georgia. <laughs> we win championships over there, you know, but not recently. You guys are, I actually think, I'll be honest. I think if Georgia doesn't pull it off this year, they're never going to pull it off. Like they are on track. So yeah. like this is the year I, for Georgia to do it. Am I correct? Is Georgia, Florida, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party yeah cocktail world party. okay party. i mean like that we play in neutral ground we don't even play in athens or in gainesville we play in jacksonville to like keep it like vibes it's actually a lot of fun and like i mean there's some fun rivalry but like the fans have a good time together i've gone good. a couple times it's cool man good there's there's i think a list of parties around the world that you have to experience at least once and that's one of them i think sure. you're right about that i think you're right about that um and obviously like if you can hang out on the florida side of things it's even better we have uh, secret handshakes. We have secret handshakes and championship trophies over here to like. Oh, geez. Play. This is the third reference to championship trophies. Really well, we got three of those things, you know? <laughs> See, I know we got to talk about privacy, but I'll say one last thing about sports. I'm like not the world's biggest sports guy, but I, I follow. While I was in Gainesville, Florida, obviously going to school, um, I was in law school and it was the Tim Tebow era, like, which is amazing. And, and, and so, like, and it was also like the basketball team was destroying the world. So I was in Gainesville for like just under three years in law school. And during that period, we won, the, the school won two national, excuse me, two basketball national championships and two football national championships. So basically the whole time I was in Gainesville was like just a giant celebration. It was an incredible time. So I'm super biased. I know it's been some dark years since, but like those three years, man, were insanity. <laughs> One, one, well, I'm gonna. I know you said one last thing, but uh, if you haven't seen, did you see the story about with your Bravos? Did you see the story about the guy in Texas that placed the bet? No, tell me about this. So you gotta look it up because I'm gonna get the story probably not 100% correct. But uh, there was a guy that last summer maybe made a, a bet on the Astros to win the World Series, and it was like a two million dollar bet. First of all. But had he won, it was going to be 
like a $26 million payout or something like that. So it's, uh, it's probably at this point, but if you got 2 million to blow on a bet, I guess it's probably not that big oh, of a deal, but sucks for really <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll talk, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about placing bets in the privacy context, I guess. Oh God. <laughs> big privacy. Let's talk about the big privacy gamble. Yeah. Well, I, you did take a gamble, I think, Greg, when you moved from for, like to your current job in the sense that it was, um, you're the CPO of EW Scripts, which is a big media company, owns a bunch of stations and sponsors a spelling bee and has a, has a whole bunch of, of digital properties that probably people aren't aware of how, just how many. And like the, the bet in my mind, if I were in your shoes would be, how am I going to, how am I going to wrangle all of these different constituencies and get privacy woven through something that big? So like, give us, give us your take on, you know, you, you did it. So what, what, what's your yeah. take on that? So, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, you know, first of all, I firmly believe that the best decisions you ever make are the ones that scare you a little bit. Right. Nice. So totally uh, every, every step that I've taken, I even, you know, Personally, you know, getting down on one knee and proposing to my wife was one of the scariest things I ever did. And that's worked out wonderfully. But uh, and professionally, the steps um, to move out of your comfort zone, I think, are the ones that almost always pay off. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be some stumbles along the way, but still, I think long term, you know, making those decisions based on, yeah, this is, you know, getting outside your comfort zone is always the right way to go. Um, moving from a global manufacturer to a company that, um, you know, even when I when I moved to Scripps, we were still in the podcast space. So we had uh, a lot, a much larger international um, uh, exposure, if you will, than we do today. Um, but in the broadcast media space, it is interesting because on one hand, it's it's business to consumer, but we don't necessarily have that that business to consumer relationship with the viewer, the end user, until you start thinking about each one of your local stations um, has at least a couple of you know, a website and a couple of mobile apps, right? So, you know, there we are um, trying to just develop that relationship directly with the viewer. And I mean, I know both of y'all have uh, an enormous ad tech background and that obviously plays in there as well. Um, Combining that with the network side and then the spelling bee, which uh, Scripps is a 148 year old company. We've been doing the spelling bee for 90 years. It's one of my- Wait, you guys run stuff. the spelling bee? Yeah, so it's the Scripps National Spelling Bee. I it love started, it. I didn't know. Oh, it's the best. Um, so, and uh, with the networks acquisition that we made, uh, the ION networks on our network side, uh, coming this year, you're going to have a much bigger, or next year, I guess, 22, you have a much bigger uh, exposure for the spelling bee because it's going to be over the air, right? It's been on ESPN up until recently, up until last year, and next year it's going to have a much bigger audience. Um, Can we talk about how beautiful brown kids are, like, crushing the spelling bee? Like, that makes me so happy. It makes it me so happy. If you haven't seen, there's a couple of really cool documentaries out on Netflix that that talk about the importance in certain communities and, and the... the um, it's it's amazing to watch these you know to watch these families and these parents and these kids work at it the way some parents and families work on soccer or baseball or what have you. It's, it it's pretty amazing. Was one of them called Spellbound? Spellbound's one of them, um, and I can't remember what the other one is off the top of my head, but it's, they're one. pretty easy to find. 
You know what's um, interesting about about the like I know like man spelling bees. When I was a child, um, I was in like I, I forgot what they called it. Um, it was I, I, English is my second language, so I was learning English as I went to school, and that meant that like in kindergarten, first grade, I sucked at spelling. Okay, because I don't speak English, and I also don't know letters, <laughs> right? Like the normal stuff. But so like it's compiled, right? My mother, rest in peace to the goat. She also didn't speak English, um, but she's the person who taught me how to spell, right? And she wow. would learn to spell in English and pronunciate in English using my books and then teach it to me. Um, and like that was our like first, my first grade, second grade experience was like my mother learning how to spell and write and speak in English through my first grade and second grade books and then teaching it back to me because I was struggling. Um, I became super passionate about words and spelling, right? Like, and I still am. And what's interesting is I have like, I mean, I have like mild dyslexia. It really manifests in numbers more than letters, but it manifests in letters sometimes. And so I am a super stickler for spelling because sometimes I don't see my own misspellings. I, I just can't see them. And so like, shout out to my mom and all immigrant parents who yeah. have to like, you know, transcend language barriers to like teach their kids how to do these things. I think I, that, I, I think that's that's got to be part of your story and stories like it, and the idea that uh, that's got to be part of what Scripps is thinking about and its association so. with the event, right? Like, let's put this out there because it has so many uh, vectors of positivity. All positive. It's it's you know the the, the B is special for a lot of reasons, but um, we've been doing the B for 90 years and we've only missed twice, once during World War II and once during the pandemic. Wow. And so then uh, we was able to come back in a different format last year than normal. It was, it was a really exciting time and it promotes things that are really important, right? It, it does, there's, there's some, um, there's some things that happen along the side of it that, that we uh, that were important to us as well, promoting reading. But you know that that pursuit of an intellectual contest, and um, it's, I, I haven't because I've been with Scripps for a little over two years. I haven't actually been in person yet, but I hope to go this year. But I've been told by people, I don't care whether you've been to the World Series or the Super Bowl or Stanley Cup or whatever, you've never felt anything until you've been in that room. <laughs> That's why kids are up on stage. It's kids, man. And, you can hear it. You know. What is yeah, the, uh, yeah, exactly. Greg, what's the tailgate like? What's the tailgate situation? <laughs> <laughs> Largest yeah. cocktail party on uh, earth. <laughs> right. No, yeah, no. Uh, uh, not a lot of tailgating. I, I, you know, um, not a lot of tailgating, I don't imagine, for that. Uh, probably not a lot of ticket scalping either, as far as I know. But I mean, Pedro, it's the language thing. Um, I spent a lot of time overseas. I'm, I'm married to, who I say, the, the world's best and prettiest French teacher. Uh, French is my second language. Okay. I love to I love to think that I speak Spanish, but I you know murder it with the best of people. And, and I think what you're talking about is, is is I know it's a little off topic, but it's super important. I love talking about languages. I love talking about I mean all three of us, right? Any lawyer. I mean we learn words. Words are important. They matter. How you use them. I I could spend this, thirty this minutes talking was, about. Greg, this was one of the ways you and I bonded, which is. Uh, when we first met, we talked about, and this is actually um, a common thread with Pedro too, where we came up in privacy through, or either came up or recognized the value of 
privacy issues through contracting and through the commercial side of the business. Pedro was in commercial legal at Oracle when we met, but inextricably there's privacy issues. I was at a broker dealer. So we were dealing with, you know, Graham Leach Bliley heavily um, in all of our agreements and especially those um, more complex ones that had, you know, partnership arrangements and they're very privacy focused. And um, you, you've talked about that with me too. Like, so what, 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 what is it in your mind? I think that inextricably links privacy and the agreements and the commercial side of, of a business. And why is it so important to be proficient in both? Cause like, you know, you and I were talking, you said someone gives me some privacy stuff to review. I just review the whole agreement. Cause it's, it's all relevant. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I think that holistic approach to contracting is, is, is how I've always done the job. And I think it's important. I, I um, I don't understand the ivory tower framework of lawyering, right? I'm not going to sully my hands with the operational side of the business. I've heard you all talk about it with other folks. Um, Being in-house, I think you do need to understand the business as a whole. And I think in privacy or being GC, you have to understand the business. And so from a privacy perspective, when a contract comes in, I have to understand what it is if it's if it's a vendor that we're trying to hire or it's um, content that we're licensing. I have to understand what it is we're trying to do in order to really get to the heart of the matter, the privacy issues that you're dealing with. Um, I, I think, and it's applicable to whether you're talking about the indemnification or limitation of liability. You know, whatever part of the agreement that you're looking at, you've got to understand what the what the intent is to really do a good job with the with the deal. I think they've risen. I think those issues have risen to the top of my list in terms of importance when you negotiate just with the other side, especially uh, liability caps and the things that are going to going to kind of be the showstoppers at the end of the day. There's only a few. And uh, and and lately, you know, I see when I am negotiating with a with a Titan or a corporatist a large company <laughs> on the other side, you know, they ask for the world. And, uh, and, you know, I think more and more, more and more, if you have your shit together on data and on privacy, and to your point, Greg, on what the thing is that's being asked to be done here, like what's the practical thing going on here? Well, should I give you uncapped liability for a situation in which you've supplied me all the data and then I process it for you? Like probably not. And uh, I think you're seeing more willingness to listen on that. And, and I'd be curious to know, Pedro, from you, uh, you know, tangentially, like when you were at other companies or, or now, like, do you think there's more flexibility on that from the larger company side in terms of listening, listening and, and making the, having that be more of a discussion or is it still more like, oh, well, you want to do business with us, then stay long. Yeah, I think what, dry, what drove a lot of the, like, I mean, just think about commercial contracts think about a SaaS contract and all of the privacy and data security terms that are in there now like inherently right like now we've got like data processing agreements and addendums and 50 page fucking attachments about you know at least governance. it's at least yeah half. so like so there's this massive component to like tech agreements now um that is really just about the flow of data and responsibilities that flow from those. Whether, whether they're applicable or not in some cases. Right, 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 right. right. It's like fucking kitchen sink type stuff. And so the question I think, or the first question you asked Andy was like, why did that become that way? Or like somewhere in there, that question was part of what you were asking. And I think the answer is 
like the hysteria over data breach about 10 years ago. Like every, it was hysteria. Every single front page article was data breach, data breach, data breach. And then you had like Target and you had, what was it? Uh, was it Experian? One of the two. And then, you know, you had like this series of data breaches, the Sony PlayStation one. Like there was all these big data breaches that freaked everybody out. Then you had all the government data breaches. I remember um, uh, uh, OPM had a huge data breach. Like I was still in the government back then because I was part of it. So I remember and like all of these data breaches scared everyone and all the corporatists, lawyers jumped in and said, whoa, 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 we got to like write all these terms to like, you know, hedge against these risks. Um, what's interesting to me is that the data breaches still happen. They're still significant. They're still material. And they don't even they don't even ring a bell now. Like like they don't make the 15th page of the New York Times. Right. Like nobody. It's not that nobody cares. People care. But like for some reason, they're less newsworthy. What has become um, like much more front and center is like issues around what the world perceives as like misinformation and like um, uh, manipulation. And so like the big focus is on companies that use data in those ways right now. That's the hyper focus. So anybody who does business with a company like Facebook, or Google or Snapchat or Twitter or Clubhouse or, you know, pick all the social media companies, plus a few others. Um, there's a lot of contracting that happens, I think, to be like super careful, both on the developer side, on the customer side, on the advertiser side, if you sell ads on the like uh, user facing side, like think about user TNCs for some like, do you have you read your Google Gmail TNCs? <laughs> have not, you read your Facebook not, TNCs? Not, in, not like, in at least a week. Have you guys read the Facebook data policy? Have you read the Google data policy? Probably not, but not in a week. But they're like these gigantic <laughs> documents, right? And so I think a lot of the like lawyer finessing has moved into those spaces. But commercial contracts are more complicated than ever, um, especially for like tech sales. And I, I don't know that that's a good thing. I don't know that like 30 page data privacy, data, uh, data processing addendums or data processing agreements or like incorporating model clauses into every single European plus Brazilian plus Argentinian plus, uh, you know, Indian model That's clauses or whatever. That's interesting. It's like a way to contract. It's just, it seems to me like kitchen sinky and not good lawyering. Yeah. I mean, that's going to come across your desk all the time, Greg, now with a company that is, doesn't have the same risk exposure globally, but you're still, I'm sure like constantly asked to review SECs and processor language and comply with every law uh, under the sun. And, you know, in, in some respects, I get it, you know, where I see uh, companies that I know have uh, a large pool of folks that they're contracting with. And so the easy way to do it is here's my boilerplate contract that applies right. to every possible thing under the sun. But it's also lazy to a certain degree, right? And and I go back and forth between, I have this debate with folks is, well, it doesn't apply. It never, it, will, it probably will never apply. So just leave it and it's fine. Well, that, that you know, that drives me crazy. It's, it's fingernails on the chalkboard, right? Like it, it's, um, if it doesn't belong there, take it out, right? If we're, um, I mean, to your point, references to the GDPR and uh, uh, data transfer clauses in agreements that have no applicability outside of the US. You know, there's, there's literally no way that, you know, there's going to be any interaction um, with EU uh, residents. It, it just doesn't belong and it should come out, right? But but you- I don't know, I Greg, we got we to gotta kitchen sink this sucker because I don't want to be doing this later. I don't want well, to come back to this. 
because here's what sales would say, right? Like, you know, I mean, I get it. The sales guy's like, but what about this product right. coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I don't want to revisit. I don't want to open this contract again. And like, that's the commercial piece here, right? Which is like, if you take, which I agree with, by the way, if you take the, um, uh, I don't want to use the word minimalist, but if you take the like specific terms that apply to this contract approach for privacy and say, these, this is the bundle of terms that apply based on what's happening in the agreement. These are the only ones we're going to put in here. Sales will come back and go, what does this mean in a year when we go to, when, you know, when we go global or when we do this or when we do that? And the answer is, well, then you got to add this DPA or you got to add the, you know, reference to the SECs or the model classes or whatever. And then sales is like, hell no. Like, you know, it took us a year to do this thing. I'm not coming back to do this bullshit. I got to be out there selling, not like working on it. This is what sales would say to me all the time. So this sure. is why I'm, yeah. Well, but, but, and I think it's an interesting tension too, because on one hand, right, you, you know, we, we all go to school for three years to learn how to say it depends and be risk averse to a certain degree, right? <laughs> and so- do you trust your dev? Do you trust your sales guys? And I mean, I, I'm sure you've had the experience. Well, this contract is for X. Well, six to 12 months later, all of a sudden it's for X, Y, and Z, but yep. nobody ever brought it back to you. Um, so, you know, do you take that kitchen sink approach in order to make sure you've got everything covered? But then the rebuttal to your sales guys are, well, wait a minute, if you've got the opportunity to sell, sell something else to this customer, aren't you going to want to open that agreement then to add the new product or raise the price or what have you. So it's, I think it's an interesting tension between, um, I'm going to play, I'm going to play the sales guy. Come on, Greg, you know, this is why we created orders. I just add an order to the yeah. agreement. And it's a one pager <laughs> with some financial terms and points to a service description. I don't want to talk about this thing yet. This is what sales would do. Right. So, yeah. cause I ran a commercial legal team. Right. And so like, you know, the business would come to me and go, all right, our contracts are hard. Right. And so like, we only want to go through that process once. So I need you to, uh, you know, modularize this thing um, uh, so that like it's easy to add orders on this agreement that we negotiate. And like, you know, I hate the kitchen sink approach. I really you know, do. I think, you need, oh, to, but I think like, you need to I think you need to pick your poison and you need to pick your tools for the job best. Right. So, yeah, so I agree. Like, yeah customizing DPAs. I think basically, I think base, this is more of a function of the DPA itself and the sales dynamic, which is the DPA has become the NDA to me. There's, there's not much, you can NDAize it, right? And you can make it, you can use all your sales leverage at a point, a later point to say, yeah, you wanna do business in Europe, you sign the DPA, it's no big deal. It happens like this. And then you're sort of, you've taken some of the negotiation, uh, pressure out of it and you've kind of just gotten it to because you're going to insist on yours because if they're going to buy another service for you you're the you're the provider of that service and so you tailor your your dpa and your sccs or whatever to that and so i take the approach that unless they want to deal deal with it right out of the gate which i'm fine with if they want to do it all we can do it all and we're going to pick the little things that we need to negotiate most of it we won't and most of it We'll just live with the kind of kitchen sink ish approach, but I think like it's it's uh, making sure that whatever you're doing later, you, you both know this from dealing with commercial teams and running running them. Like you want to make it as frictionless as possible, but have that balance of getting what we need because later when those things are going to be scrutinized, or you know, in my case, if you're going to go you know run through diligence or something, you have to make sure that you've got your ducks in a row. Greg, interested in your point of view on this question. It's, it's related to what Andy's talking about. Like another wrinkle in this contracting for privacy piece is that the privacy laws are in flux. 
the regulations are not static, right? It's not like contracting for, I don't know, uh, like international movement of goods or some, some, some settled area, like maritime law that's pretty well settled and established since like the pirates were out there, you know, doing things. So like our thing changes from one minute to the next, right? Like Shrems has a good idea he, or a bad idea, goes to the thing and then everything changes in, uh, in about eight months, right? And so like, is there a strategy for accounting for like the influx nature of privacy laws and the need to update contracts frequently? Is there like a, a way to account for that in like a con in a sales contract framework or is yeah. it just static? Well, I'll, uh, in, in true lawyer form, I'll, I'll answer your question with a question because I'll tell you sort of how I've thought about it over time, but I'm curious about your y'all's reaction to this. And, and also to, to pick up something you said a minute ago, the, the hysteria over data breaches, you saw a similar chum in the water over GDPR going live, For right? Sure. And the you know hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that were spent on uh, outside consultants coming in to interviews and ex paperwork, exactly. A lot right? of paperwork, yeah. Yep. Um, and, it's not like this privacy stuff is really all that new, right? You know, talk to any of your friends that do HIPAA, uh, you know, talk to anybody that is, uh, you know, German attorneys that have been working under the directive since 92 or five, right? Um, yeah, the laws change. Yeah, there are differences across the board, whether you're talking about um, what we have in the US versus EU versus uh, Brazil, Argentina, India, et cetera. Uh, but thematically, I think there are, you know, your sort of seven principles that you can um, live your life by and be okay, if that makes sense, right? I, I mean, you're never going to be uh, 100% in compliance with every single law perhaps, but you do um, what you can to run a good privacy program, right? And, and I think I, if you- I, Go ahead, go ahead. Anyways, and I think if you, if, you, if you run a program, if you um, advocate inside the company to uh, what those privacy principles are about, what the fundamentals are about, um, then I think everything else kind of flows to where it needs to be. And, and absolutely, um, at my last gig, we had 10,000 employees in 50 countries around the world as you know, GDPR was coming online and you could lose a lot of sleep over trying to uh, keep up with the minutia of every single law. Um, it's the best, I've, I've seen some large, large companies based in Europe do really good jobs, but they've got teams of hundreds on, on their privacy teams, right? Um, so, you know, I think, as I said, I think thematically they're all, uh, there's, there's commonalities there that you can, that you can strive towards. You know, what's interesting about something you said that I agree with, which is like, it's impossible to comply with everything down to the like most narrow requirement simultaneously, right? Like simultaneous compliance globally is very difficult in a privacy context. And I think everyone understands that. However, like data protection authorities and courts don't give a shit. Like as a defense, that doesn't work, right? So yeah. once you get zeroed in on for whatever violation you are uh, being accused of or whatever it is, you can never defend it by saying, well, 
Like we did the best we could across the world, but we missed this one line in the thing. And but we're 99% compliant, but like this one thing, right? And so like and I do appreciate the fact that I see most of protection authorities around the world sort of like zeroing in on like egregious violations, like like real or zeroing in on specific companies to make examples, kind of like the IRS method, this kind of thing. So like I see that. Um, and I think that's great, but it still leaves the door open for like a capricious enforcement if it wanted to happen or just like narrow f enforcement. And it'll be interesting to me over the next five, 10 years to see like how enforcement evolves. And if it does become sort of like a booby trap system, right, where it's like, you know, everyone's not, like the SEC is well known for being like, OK, we're coming after these guys and like they'll yeah. find the booby traps. And, you know, you, you, like Al Capone went to jail for tax evasion, like these kind of things. And so, like, I, I wonder if it'll evolve that way. Well, California, not. California is going to be interesting, right? Like, let's California uh, exactly. We're going to see, right? We're going <laughs> to see firsthand. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. I talked to somebody, a friend of mine who used to be in the FTC, and I and it was around when uh, the GDPR came out. And I said something like, "Well, if you put your regulator hat back on for me," he was gone from there. And and uh, I said, you know, if you were going to focus on where would you focus? You know, would you focus on making a bit, an example of a big company or would you rack up a bunch of early wins to kind of like, you know, get your sea legs before you did something like that? And he paused and he was like, I'd go for the big one. <laughs> and I just think, I think that's the human nature that plays into it. Right. The idea of because because in a vacuum, I would probably be like, yeah, rack up some wins, get some under, you know, get some some uh, enforcement experience and some examples and get some depth there and then like, boom, pay it off. But there is an interesting human element there, Pedro, to, to, to related to what you said about the way enforcement's going to go. And if we think about California and who's there and what that's going to be like, I mean, there's going to be a huge desire to make an example of somebody. I yeah, I mean, I, I think, but I don't even know if it's human nature and it's just like managing resources. I used to work at the Justice Department, yeah, right? Like be. the Justice Department is like, has limited resources and limited capacity. It's just as hard to investigate a minnow as it is a, a whale. Like it's like, there. I mean, it, th there's a threshold of difficulty that's there for both, right? And so, and that threshold requires people treasure you know talent like all the things and so when you're at the justice department using like taxpayer money you know you, i think you have to figure out like as part of the equation uh where do we enforce that will re hopefully result in an outcome that affects the most people right and, and in a positive way and so making an example out of a company that people know and recognize will affect people outside of that that don't even do business with that company in many ways and i think that's sort of the government or at least back then in the stone ages when I was in there, like the way we sort of thought about these things. We have to wrap soon. I want to ask Greg one more question before we go. Um, Cause it basically, it's a question just I'm curious about for both of your uh, takes and I'll start with Greg. I got, do you think the CPO should, can or should also be the DPO? I, I was recently there, you know, two companies that I'm aware of, bigger companies where in the past, the DPO, like the CPO reports to the DPO, which is weird. And then, or in another company, they were the exact same person. And, and I just, I, like, what do you guys think about that? Speaking of lack of clarity on, on the law. Uh, 
Well, I'll go. Yeah. So I think it's it's a technical. I think I think technically the answer is no, right? So if you look right. at DPO as being a defined role under the GDPR, uh, I believe that that DPO role is really meant to be sort of that um, uh, your external accounting firm that comes in. You pay them, but they're signing off on your financials as a impartial impartial body. I, I really think that was the intent under the GPRs for that DPO. Um, and then if you look at the language, you know, reporting to the highest levels of the company and yet can't be fired for doing the job, et cetera. Um, whereas the CPO, I believe, is more aligned with the business. Um, and still with privacy in mind, but- Me too, um, Me too. I agree with you, but that isn't the reality. That, that I think no, I, right, right. Well, and 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 you know when G, when GDPR was looming, um, I, myself included to a certain degree at my last job, I, you know, I had the title of DPO, but nobody knew what that meant, and and people were hiring, and still are, I think, hiring privacy people with no basis for what privacy is meant to be, right? So, um, the, I think the uh, the titles. Are, are still thrown around and maybe used interchangeably incorrectly. And, and I'll, I want to hear Pedro answer as well, but I think there's, um, you can, I think delineate the positions um, by thinking of it, uh, your ethical your, your ethical obligation. You know, as attorneys, you, you, you've got the fiduciary uh, responsibility to your client. DPO, that fiduciary responsibility is more to sort of privacy writ large with a capital P, the data subject, um, as whereas the CPO is uh, more as, as, as part of the legal department or as a, um, a representative of the company, the fiduciary, fiduciary responsibility of the company. Yeah, I think like there's a lot of ways to think about this, but to me, DPO has a data uh, like security component to like the obligations of that role, at least as I understand it. And I think sort of how like, GDPR frames it that are sort of possibly at tension with privacy sometimes, which is strange to say, right? Because like people think of GDPR as this massive privacy rule and it is, but it's also more, it's this idea of govern, there's this component of governance, which governance and privacy aren't like tied to each other, right? Like how I store data and where I keep it and how I keep track of it facilitates privacy outcomes, but it's not a privacy work stream if that makes sense. And I think that's more data protection work stream. With all this said, I think companies can decide for themselves how they want to do this. And a lot of it depends on how the company's organized. Because if I'm at a smaller place that's growing, it's to me, it does make sense for the same person to do both roles. If you're at a company as big as mine, you're, you're going to like, you're going to delineate these things out a little bit. And there's going to be people with like technical obligations with, with like statutory, regulatory, like reporting requirements and all of these things. And then there's going to be like philosophical privacy people who are going in injecting privacy uh, consciousness everywhere and, and, and validating that against standards that we create like in the IPP and then, and then laws and rules around the world. So I think it kind of I, I know, Greg, you said the art of law school is to say it depends, but it does depend. Like companies have to decide for themselves. I don't think the same person doing that role works at every company. And I do think it works at others. It's probably a function of size in some way. But even then, I still think the nature of your company and the culture of your company also matter to decide whether it's the right thing to do or not. I liked your language, Greg, of fiduciary, because I think there's yeah. a 
there's an element there of, you know, Pedro, when you pull in security, I think it, it it's bigger than that. You know, it's more of a, that's what the role is. And I agree with you. Maybe it's just, okay, take the principles and fundamentals and position it within your company, you know, with, with what makes sense the, the most. So we'll see, but uh, all right, we, we gotta go. I gotta go, Greg. Great to see Greg, you. Thanks, man. Um, sorry you went to Georgia, but I forgive you. And, um, you know, it is, how's Kentucky? How's Kentucky basketball these days? I'm not. What's going on there?